0: Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. It's Brandon Laws. Thanks for the download today. Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. Learn more about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution at zeniumhr.com. Hey, and don't forget to sign up for the annual What People Want from Work survey. This is an employee engagement survey that Zenium runs every year. It's free to participate. You get a free report in the end. We do all the work. All you have to do is send a link and email template to your employees. They take the survey, we do the analysis, and you get a report in November. Sign up before August 31st to participate. All right, today's guest is a returning guest. It's Kelly Thompson. I think I interviewed her about a year ago, and I have her back to talk about negotiation. So we unpack this entire topic about negotiating pay, benefits, workplace location, PTO, she really sheds light on the significance of proper negotiation from the outset and effective ways to present your case as an employee. But I also think for, for managers and leaders, HR professionals who might be on the other side of the table doing negotiation with an employee, I think this is really good context for those as well. So hope you enjoy this conversation with Kelly Thompson. I always think she's so articulate and I love having her on. So enjoy today's episode with Kelly Thompson. It is a pleasure to have you back on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back. I'm excited about our topic today.
0: Yeah, we're talking about negotiation with salary. That's a tricky topic, both for somebody who's negotiating on their own behalf and for leaders and HR people who get involved in the negotiation. So we're going to dive in. We'll start with you. You started in the banking industry early, I think in your 20s. What can you tell us about that initial job offer that you got and how it influenced where your career went?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because since we're talking about money, my joke and one of the things I've talked about, especially in my book, is that when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a weather girl. I want to be the weather girl so bad. I love like following the tornadoes and standing outside and watching tornadoes. I'm from Nebraska, so I got to do this. And as I got into corporate and especially into banking, which you would think talking about money being in banking since like, you know, our product is money would be easy. It's not. And my thought was always, gosh, like money should be as easy to talk about as the weather. But it wasn't always easy for me, you know. Um my first job into banking was because I was moving back to Omaha after living in a different city to be closer to my then fiance. And the job offer that I got was about $8,000 more than what I was making at my previous job. And so I took it. Like I was like, "Oh my gosh, it's more money. Yes." no negotiation. It was just like, oh, wow, I'm going to be rich. You know, I think I was still making in the $20,000 range. You know, And so when you're in your 20s, you're like, oh my gosh, $28,000. I won the lottery and did not negotiate at all. But what I had since learned after many years in the profession and being much wiser is me not negotiating even that first initial salary impacted my salary for the remainder of the 12 years that I worked at that bank. Because Let's just say that I would have negotiated my, I think it was like $28,000 salary, even just up like 3%. You know, I at least would have had a little bit more to start with. That also means they would have been adding just a smidge more in matching money to the 401k. And then every other three to 5% raise I got thereafter would have been on a higher amount than which I started. And I think the other thing too that I didn't think about at the time that I coach a lot of my my, my people to do is I didn't even look around to see if that was in alignment with market value. I mean, at the time, they could have just offered me more money because it was just more than I was making and oh, she'll say yes, but I didn't even know, is this in alignment with for what this role pays in my area. I mean, it was just one of those complete early career newbie mistakes of, Oh my gosh, it's so much. It sounds like so much money. I'll, I'll just say yes and, and go with it.
0: Yeah. Cause so it's more than what you had. Right. But the, the issue is that it anchored you to a certain point, and then your raises there on after, you know, three, four, 5%, whatever is off that anchoring point versus if you'd asked for if you'd actually negotiated 5% more that was, your anchoring point starts at a different place and your your salary long term may look a lot different.
1: Absolutely. And that's a lot of the things that they study when they study, like, they talk about the gender wage gap or gender negotiation differences. Uh, there was a study that was done by Hewlett Packard. And what they found was that men more often than women negotiate their very first salary. And so you exactly articulated that point. So then that anchoring point, that, that point that they're always starting from is automatically higher than a woman's. And those 3% raises or even just bumps in your salary when you're promoted into leadership, they all add up over time. And it isn't just in your take-home pay, but you also have to think about, well, then that's just a little bit less matching money in a 401k match than I would have got had I negotiated that salary up front.
0: In hindsight, it's easier for you to say like, uh, I wish I would have negotiated in my early 20s because my career might like look a lot different or your financial situation might look a lot different. But when you're talking to 20 something year olds and you know maybe their first job, I mean, you got a daughter in college, she'll have her first like professional job in a few years, right? How are you coaching people like that to negotiate? Is it appropriate?
1: Yeah, okay, well, I'm gonna tell you about one of my favorite clients, which is my daughter. So she got her very first job, at age 15 at a pizza place and she was not a server a hostess okay and so she didn't have a lot of leverage at that point i think they were going to pay her like nine dollars an hour plus tips and she's like i took it well of course you took it it's your first job right but then you know she had worked there for about a year and she really wanted to work at this local coffee shop and so when she went in for the interview for her coffee shop we already talked about you know how important it is to see if you can negotiate your salary And we talked about, you know, her name is Haley. And I said, Haley, you know, you already have a year of learning, knowing how to count money. Right. Which is really important when you're in these types of jobs. Customer service, you already have food service experience. You already know what it's like to deal with difficult customers because by this time she had moved up to a server position. You know what it's like when people are upset with their food. You know, people are very emotional about their food. We know this. And so, you know, you already have a lot of these skills, you know, to work in a really fast paced environment and you need to advocate for that. And so she went into this next job when she was interviewing to be um, work at this little coffee place and she was hired. And I believe again they offered her like nine something an hour and she goes, actually, I was wondering if you would consider 9.75 an hour because I have, you know, these skills. And they did. They hired her at a higher rate than they would, you know, early on. And so I don't think it's ever too early to start having the conversation to talk about advocating for yourself, demonstrating your skills and doing it in a way that says, hey, when you hire me, you're not getting a brand new person. Like you're getting already some of these you know, very valuable skills that I've already learned that I can bring to you. And that means I can hit the ground, you know, running a little bit quicker. And so, yeah, we we started at age 16 here in our household. And so I don't think there's an age where you can be too young.
0: There's a myth out there that asking for more money or negotiating on your own behalf is rude. Debunk that myth for me.
1: Yeah. You know, I think sometimes this depends on gender. It could depend on your family of origin, but some of us have maybe been taught that, oh, you know what? You shouldn't ask for more money. That's rude. Sometimes it's kind of like you shouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth, right? It's not rude to talk or it's rude to talk about money. I think as you're listening, I maybe want you to reflect on what is maybe that money message that you've always been taught? And is it true? Is it working for you? Because some of the things that I see in my practice, and I've seen this too, just leading HR teams is that somehow, and I don't want to overgeneralize, but the tendency is, is that men did not get this message that negotiating or asking for more is rude, right? They they heard a different message. It's more about providing for your family and, and those sorts of things. Whereas women tended to get the message, "Oh gosh, you know, you should just be grateful for what you have." And so some of those really start to manifest even into behaviors as we get older, which can sometimes, when you know, these big stakes situations come. It can be a little bit harder to ask for what we need because we have sometimes just internalized some of these these unconscious messages. And so what I really work on with my clients is really just helping them find evidence that the opposite could be be just as true. So if the myth is, um, you know, we shouldn't talk about money or asking for more money is rude, you know, actually, how could the opposite be true? How is negotiating your salary or asking for, um, you know, what you deserve, what you need to be paid, negotiating, how is it actually helpful How could it actually be the most polite thing that you can do? How could it be the most, um, you know, not selfish, but like the most like loving thing that you could do for yourself. And like, let's just think of evidence for that. And I think sometimes just finding evidence like, oh yeah, you know what? Like when I've negotiated my salary, I felt good about going into that job and I didn't feel resentful. Like I was working you know, harder than what I was getting paid for. And so I felt like I put in my best effort. I took it seriously. You know, I was really proud. It made me work harder. I was able to reinvest more in the company, et cetera, et cetera. So lots of times we can find evidence sometimes that the opposite is true. And that can just be a helpful way to kind of just kind of flip sometimes those beliefs that we've always had.
0: When people get into negotiation, I'm sure you've seen strategies across the board, but I've often heard of people going the personal route, like talking about their own personal situation, whether it's like, I can't make my bills or I've got this... You know health problem in my family or I'm x y z you know the list goes on versus a fact based you know you talked about your daughter with experience and what she's bringing to the table or um a certain skill set that might be unique to to a role or um a cultural alignment, whatever it may be. Why do people resort to personal versus the fact based and what's the right strategy,
1: yeah. You know, I can't get into everybody's psyche and know why they use personal. I think maybe they maybe have received advice like, hey, if you just go to your leader and tell them, you know, um, know, this is the situation we want at home. I'll just give you an example. When I was very early on in my HR career, we had an individual who was trying to negotiate a certain salary because his reasoning was, is he wanted his wife to stay home. And so while we appreciate that and we appreciate that's the lifestyle that you want to create, we pay based on market value. Um, based on the pay skills we have in our organization, et cetera. And it's up to you to figure out the logistics in your own household of how you're going to make that work. Of course, we, you say that with a lot of loving kindness. So I'm not sure where that comes from, but what I've experienced in my own, both leading teams and being on the other end of those as a leader, and then being in HR is that the more that we can keep it to, you know, a few things like facts what is the market paying for this role? Because that's what organizations look at. They want to be competitive in the marketplace. So they're going to see what is the market paying for this role. And let's make sure that we're competitive in the marketplace. Companies have to look at their own internal salary bands or requirements or levels, layers, whatever you call it in your organization. And to keep pay equity so that we don't have large gender wage gaps, right? Or even just large wage gaps in between employees where we're paying Brandon, like, A ton of money because, you know, he came to us with this really great story and now you're making 20 grand more just because like that doesn't create equity. So we really have to think about equity in our organization so that people are being paid fairly for the work that they are doing. And then the final thing is we're also then paying, though, for skills and experience. You know, is somebody 20 years my senior with 20 more years of dedicated experience going to make more than me? Very likely so. But they have 20 more years of skills and experience, you know, that they're bringing to the job. And so knowing that that's the decision criteria that organizations are paying on market equity and skills, talent and experience, that's the mindset in which you also need to frame your ask. And you can do that. You can go out and you know what? Maybe you do have um, a personal financial situation at home. Maybe you do want your partner to stay home. Maybe you are having some health issues. All of those are valid reasons to ask for a raise. And when you go and ask for the raise, the correct way to do it is to phrase it in, you know, hey, here's the data that I saw in the market of what my job is being paid. You know, um, here is all the skills and talents I bring to this job. And hey, here are three big things that I've done for this organization in the last year and the results. And so I think because of these things, you know, I warranted to be, you know, bumped up to the next salary band or a $5,000 increase, or sometimes in jobs, you can move from like an analyst to a senior analyst and that comes with a pay raise. So you can still get the things that you need personally, but using it in a language that advocates professionally.
0: Since you're emphasizing the importance of using market data, I want to unpack this because I think it gets a little complicated in negotiation for the employee or the candidate that, that's negotiating on their own behalf because they don't have access like an employer does. The employer might have access to a lot of different wage data sources. They're running, creating their wage bands. but unless they're, unless they're completely transparent along the way about what the, the range is for a particular position, I think the candidates are kind of left in the dark to use like Glassdoor and LinkedIn and other positions that have a similar title, but they're not going to go layers deep on like what the job duties are and truly match up. They just don't have that kind of data like employers do. So that being said, how does a candidate or a current employee leverage market data when they don't quite have the same access?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. You're right, and to clarify that, organizations often have access to data that's provided to them by consulting companies like Towers Watson or somebody like that, right? That their only job is compensation studies, right? So the the data is much more granular. However, the nice thing that's happening in the environment today is there are more laws around salary transparency, and so now we have just a few more data points. And I'm just going to kind of cover some of the data points I tell my clients to do. So if my client is kind of wondering, how do I negotiate the salary? How do I know if it's being paid fairly? I'm like, let's check a couple of places. Yes. Let's go out and check glassdoor.com. Let's check salary.com. Let's check payscale.com. Those are like the widely known ones. And to make sure that we're accurate, let's make sure that you're not just matching the title, but you're matching the actual work that you do. So make sure you actually read the job description. Let's drill down by company size. Let's drill down by location because I hate to break everybody's heart, but you are not going to get paid as much in Nebraska as you will in California or New York. Okay. So let's not go into a Nebraska negotiation with a New York mindset. Okay. You're just not going to get that salary. So, you know, let's be smart. Right. And let's, let's drill down a little bit. A couple other places you can go though, as you can start validating those data points is every state is going to have their Bureau of Labor Statistics website. Um, oftentimes it's called a wage estimate system. So in Nebraska, you can even just Google Nebraska wage estimate system, and you can go and look at job titles And it will give you government reported data for, you know, positions in my city that are doing that and what they're being paid. Okay. So some states have that. There's um, another really cool new company called Open Comp, and you can go in and do their salary paycheck calculator and it will pull, they are like a compensation consulting company that's dedicated to salary transparency. They will go in and do a comparison analysis for you. The last place that you can check is because salary transparency is becoming law in many states is you can go find jobs that are posted in states that maybe have similar cost of living for you and just see what's on the job posting boards and say, okay, this is kind of what I do. This is my title. This matches my work. I'm in Nebraska. This job's located in Kansas. It's probably pretty close. So what I'm saying is that are you going to get exact data no, you are not. But are you going to start to become more educated so that we can get this bubble around this number that we're going to ask between five and 10,000 so that we can kind of start to zero in? Yes. And it's like, how do we start to use just this intelligence to get a little bit closer to where we think we should be um, so that we're not totally one, well, either discovering we're out of the ballpark for salary range, or we're coming to a salary negotiation that is just so far out of the ballpark. They're going to be like, no, but with these resources, you can start to get really close to where it needs to be.
0: I'm going to go on a kind of a little sidebar here, but I've I don't have any data behind this other than just kind of like anecdotally what I've heard is within the last year or two a talent crunch of just talent, and now that people are working remote, I've heard that some organizations are doing like a location agnostic salary where it like you could live in Nebraska but still get paid like San Francisco wages. Are you hearing any of that from employers? because they're just, they're starving for talent?
1: I heard it from clients. So I have a client who is in the tech space You know, unfortunately, she was one of the individuals who got laid off in one of the many tech layoffs. But one of the things that we were talking about just in our conversations about what she was going to do next was she said, Kelly, I worked for one of those companies that was based out of New York. They were just paying everybody New York dollars. She goes, and I was really happy here in Nebraska. And we just, she just said, she goes, you know what? I think one of the things that I need to do as a job seeker is just recognize that that was a pretty good situation for a while, but it may not be likely that I'm going to find another job that just pays me New York or San Francisco rates no matter where I live. So have I seen it? Yes. Is it ubiquitous and everywhere? Probably not. But I think, you know, then looking at the the candidate thing, one of the things I do as a coach is one, of the, again, just having that conversation, you know, that was really nice for a while. And not every organization is going to pay you the same, no matter where you live. Every organization has their own compensation philosophy. And that's just something that you can learn and get to know during the interview process. And as a manager, it's also very important for you to understand your organization's compensation philosophy, because you're going to have people that come to you asking for raises. And so when you get a better sense of, you know, just how your organization pays its people, you can have, you know, better conversations when they come in for that ask.
0: You'd mentioned that in an article you'd wrote, you'd talked about how, and then I think this is a myth. It's common myth. Like in the interview process, people wait until the very end to ask about compensation but you know if you're trying to really get to know a culture and they have a compensation philosophy not not every company does but i think a lot are really leaning that way because they want to be transparent about like what their philosophy is on on comp is it appropriate to ask that in the first couple interviews or the first interview just to see if there's alignment
1: you know i guess in my own experience i think so i'll just put myself back in my hr shoes and one of the things that I kind of believed about the interview process, and I often joke that um, interviewing is very similar to online dating, like we just kind of want to fail fast here, right? We're going to kind of see if we're heading in the same direction because if we're not, like, let's not waste our time. Interviewing is an intense and time-consuming activity for an organization. And it is an intense time-consuming activity for the employee. A lot of employees tell me when they're job seeking, they're like, this is a full-time job. I'm like, yeah, it can be. My philosophy was, is let's start talking about comp Early, like first, you know, call, I would have a lot of my recruiters who were doing the screening. And even when I was a recruiter doing the screening, just saying, you know, the the pay range that we have slated for this position is X to X. Does that fit inside the range you're looking for? Because that way, if I'm on the call with that person, and they were hoping for 150,000, but I'm only going to pay up to 100,000. Like, let's just end this. Like, why am I going to bring you in, sit you in front of managers when we are so far apart money-wise that this is not going to work? And so my philosophy was always like, let's be as transparent as possible up front. That way, if we need to fail fast, we're not wasting our time. And most importantly, we are not wasting your time. And so I, I think the earlier, the better. Everybody's a little different organization-wise, but that's my that's my story and I'm going to stick to it.
0: What about the job posting? Wouldn't that be early enough? Or are you opposed to putting range on a posting?
1: Oh, no, I'm team range. I love that some states have gone to um, salary transparency. Because I even remember there was this one org. I was looking for, I'd been at the bank for a long time. And I was kind of getting a little itchy. And so I was looking externally. And at the time, people did not post salaries. They just didn't. But there was this one company in Omaha who always did. And I remember seeing a couple of, you know, things out on their website and I would see the job. I'm like, Ooh, that looks interesting. But like the max pay was like 20 grand less than I was making. So I was like, no, I'm not gonna waste my time. I don't even use their resources or get into their, you know, their applicant tracking. So I think that salary transparency is good. I think it's helpful. I think it doesn't waste folks' time. I'm not applying for jobs that are not even going to be close right? I don't even spend time with a recruiter. You know, one of the things I see organizations doing to kind of beat this whole salary transparency thing is they'll post a job salary range of like, this job pays anywhere between $25,000 and $125,000. Like, that's crazy. Don't do that. But I honestly think that the more clear we can be, I just have this philosophy that the more clear we are, the more we are going to attract the right people for us. And I don't think that that's any different in recruiting. So I'm glad you called that out. The best place to start is in the job posting.
0: It's funny because I'm a a marketer by profession. And so we always talk about like, you know, talk to your audience, the one that you're actually trying to attract. And if you do like what you just described with the 25,000 to 100,000, you're trying to appeal to everybody. So you're appealing to nobody. And that's just not a good strategy. So I like your ideas about just being very clear, very transparent. Don't waste anybody's time because you're going to attract the people you want and repel the rest. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. I have this little mantra in my book and I made little bookmarks of it, but it just says, Success loves clarity. The more clear you are, the quicker it's going to be and the easier it's going to be to be successful.
0: In negotiating, we don't have to just negotiate salary, right? There's other things that we can do. What are some of those other things that we can negotiate?
1: Yeah. So what I've seen some of my clients negotiate recently is a hybrid work schedule where they want to work. Some organizations are still, you know, lenient on that. So that's one avenue you can take. I've seen some individuals work to negotiate PTO, especially as you accelerate into the higher levels of the organization. PTO can be something that can be more negotiable. I've seen people um, negotiate uh, just other benefits in terms of you know the perks that the organization has to offer, not only from flexibility to work at home, but PTO, but I've seen folks advocate for tuition reimbursement. Hey, I really want to take this educational opportunity or as a coach, I see this. I want to invest in myself professionally. If I take this role, especially if they're coming in at the upper levels, you know, are you willing to, you know, spot, you know, $5,000 or whatever it is, you know, for professional coaching to help me be my best. And I see organizations do that frequently. In fact, I work with a company as kind of a corporate partner to which they offer some of their higher level individuals, coaches. And, you know, that can be absolutely something that you can negotiate. Um, So yeah, learning, PTO, flexibility, those are all things that are, I think, up for grabs.
0: Is there any concern with equity issues when you start getting into that space of like, oh, so and so asked for more PTO days while somebody who's been a tenured employee isn't at the same level? Like, how do you solve some of those problems that might come with it?
1: Yeah, you're so right. So lots of times when that would happen, if there was an equity issue, and we did have a very highly qualified candidate, let's just say they had six weeks of PTO at their old company, and they want that, okay, rightfully so. You've been here, been around the block for twenty years. You know, we would also then be forced to reckon with, like, okay, is there a major disparity? You know, in terms of maybe we have another individual that also has twenty years of experience, and they only have four weeks. Well, then, is it beneficial for us as an employer, and is it a gesture of goodwill to match that person? Doesn't mean we to match everybody on the team because, you know, not everybody has the same level of years and experience, but you're right. I think, you know, organizations who are mindful of equity ask themselves those hard questions and they do it. And I've seen healthy organizations do it when let's just say they bring in sometimes a male into a role who is fairly highly paid. They will then look around and say, okay, are we paying our, you know, the females in this role or even just that person's peers who have similar years of experience, et cetera, et cetera, you know, equity if what we're paying this person because, you know, one of the tricks, and this has been well-studied, I've, I've written an article on Fast Company about this, about how people avoid pay caps because sometimes when you're promoted in your own organization, they're like, well, we'll promote you, Brandon, to this next title, but it's our policy that we typically not give more than a 15% raise inside the company. But a way that you avoid that is you go to other companies, and lots of companies can't even ask you what you made, so you're getting this massive jump, and so you're coming in at a very high rate. Well, I think smart companies know. Well, then we need to look at the equity of everyone around us, not only of PTO but of pay. And I just think that that's just something that you know companies who are equity minded are constantly looking at. And I, I've seen organizations who do that.
0: Yeah, like pay compression is a is a real issue, right? You have people that leave the organization. And then you have to hire to replace and it's like the market value of somebody coming in. Well, you, you know, the rest of the people that work there maybe aren't coming in at that level anymore. So you have to really look hard at where the rest of your people are getting paid. And are you compressing their wages in, a, in an unintentional way? A lot of times it's not intentional, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that starts the whole conversation we started on this podcast as a lot of employees think about having the salary conversation because they see somebody else coming in and they start to wonder, I wonder if that person was brought in at like 20 grand higher than me. And then they're going to go out and look at market, do some research. And so this whole thing is just a big circle.
0: (laughs) It is. Yeah. And that's, you you talked about the discrepancy between men and and women, men tend to negotiate better. But I look at that, if that happens perpetually long-term where women don't negotiate on their own behalf and men do, Is that what's contributing to the gap that we've seen over the years? You know,
1: there's a lot of things that contribute to the gap. You know, the research shows that men will negotiate their salary four times more than women. Other things I've seen, you know, being in the HR space is just in general, when men first do come into that job, their starting salary requirements are often higher Than what a woman will list as her starting salary requirements. Some of that could be because he's already paid more than she is. So some of it, yes, is individual, but I also believe that a lot of it is systemic. And there are some systemic issues that are still at play. Because I think one of the things that I talk about, especially when I'm talking to, you know, male CEOs or male senior leaders is like, what we have to realize is that the modern organization was created by men for men at a time when women stayed home. Women couldn't even sign their own checks or borrow money in their own name until 1974. Women weren't really in the modern organization in the senior most roles until like the 80s and 90s. Like that's like when we were little, right? I mean, this is recent. And so when women were in the organization, they were typically hired into lower paying roles. And there was just still some old legendary systemic thinking that women's work was not worth as much of a man's. And it's just decades of undoing that and undoing that. And I think every generation gets a little bit better. So the answer is, is it's both and.
0: Do you think it's getting better? Like you're saying it's like, it's taken decades to kind of unwind the old, the old school way of doing things. Do you think we're waking up to it?
1: The data would tell you, no, the data would tell you that the gender pay gap has remained very similar Where we are making improvements is the data, especially like the lean-in McKinsey women in the workplace report showing that there are more women CEOs more than ever. There are now more women in C-suite positions more than ever. And so I feel confident that as we get more women into the rooms where decisions are made, some of these conversations will start happening. And I'll give you an example. So one of my most favorite books that your listeners can check out is called My Life in Full by Indra Nooyi. And if you don't know Indra Nooyi, she was the CEO of Pepsi for many, many years. And as a woman CEO, one of the things that she mentions in the book that she would call, you know, attention to is pay disparities amongst her her leadership team. And she says in the book, she says, you know, sometimes men would be like, "Well, you know, she's only making like 3% less." And so Indra would say, well, then we could just pay you 3% less Then no big deal. And they'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. So, I mean, I think sometimes it just takes, you know, someone to call attention to these issues to really lead the change. And she just does a wonderful job of talking about a lot of the topics we're talking about today in that book. And so I highly recommend that read
0: let's end the conversation with giving um, listeners, if, if they ever have to negotiate on their behalf, maybe a tool to use, maybe a script. I know you've worked with your daughter on this and you work with other clients. What's some sort of salary negotiation script that we can use to feel comfortable in asking for what we deserve?
1: Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to preface this by saying I actually have a free like Mad Lib script thing that you can fill out on my website and I'll drop that link, but I'll walk you through it. So really quick, let's just do what I said in the beginning. Let's start with the data. Okay. Let's just do a little bit of market research. Let's really write down our unique skills and abilities, what we bring and the results that we brought, you know, and how that's benefited for the organization. Let's just start with like a snapshot of where everything is. And then the next thing that I have folks do is as we prepare for our ask, then I want us to practice our ask. And so maybe that looks like just writing down a script of what you might say. Maybe it's typing your leader an email, but not sending it yet, right? And sleeping on it. Practicing your ask could be practicing it on your iPhone, in front of your dog, in front of your partner. And then, you know, you know your leader best on if they're going to respond to this best in person or responding to this, like if you want to send an email first, you know, same thing in the, you know, if you're interviewing for a job, you can kind of get a sense for if you want to have this conversation in email or with the recruiter over the phone. And the last one is just to make your ask. And the tip that I always give folks when they make their asks is this is make your ask and be quiet. So often, and I'm speaking from firsthand experience, I just want you to know, is we make our ask and then we get all nervous and we're like, oh, you know, Brandon, but if you can't do that, it's no big deal. Like, nope, make your ask and simply just be silent. So prep your ask, practice your ask, make your ask and be quiet. (laughs) And I have um, a a little guide that folks can download on my website. If they go to kellyreeathompson.com, it's under the download section. It's the salary negotiation guide. So
0: Awesome. We'll put a link in the show notes for sure. Kelly, thanks for being part of the podcast. Kelly, you're the author of Closing the Confidence Gap. You do speaking, coaching, a whole host of things. Uh, Where can people find you?
1: Yeah, the best place to find me is, like I said, online at kellyraythompson.com. I'm Kelly with an I, R-A-E. But yeah, you can definitely reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn, and on both of those platforms, I'm forward slash Kelly Ray Thompson.
0: My guest today has been Kelly Thompson. Kelly, thanks for being part of the show. Yeah, thank you. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on transform your workplaces for general information and educational purposes only. Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.